Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Genesis chapter 9, we're going to be reading the whole chapter. Church, hear now the word of the Lord. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. 
He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This past two weeks, we've been looking at the beginning part of the book of Genesis chapter 9. If you're just joining us or visiting, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And we've arrived at this story that is so frequently told and familiar of Noah and the ark and the flood. So today I want us to look at this chapter as a whole because this is a strange ending to this familiar story. We've seen up to this point in our study of Genesis, God creating a world and then a people for his own glory and in his own image. We've seen into that perfect creation, sin come and contaminate death coming to all mankind. And following it, the righteous judgment of God come to the first Adam as he is banished from the garden and then to all humanity in the flood. We've seen, and this is a pattern throughout Scripture, God choosing to preserve a remnant for himself, a people for himself. All the peoples of the earth in Noah's time have been washed away. It is a staggering thought when we think about it, uh, the catastrophic nature of everyone on the planet dying except for these eight people inside of the ark. Only Noah has been spared. Only his family have been spared. The animals that were left on the ark, and now they have exited, and for the first time in about a year, they stand on dry ground. It's in that context in verse 1 that it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. We find in this passage a familiar language of be fruitful and multiply. We're going to see that echoed again and again. We've heard it at the beginning of Genesis as God says that to Adam. We're going to hear it later on in the Old Testament as well. We also find in this uh, first passage here in Genesis chapter 9 as God institutes some differences in the world. That that the world after the flood is now different than the world before the flood. Uh, Before the flood, they were given all the green plants as food. Both man and animals were given them to eat. And now God says, I give you every moving thing, it shall be, in verse 3, for your food. So before this, everybody was basically vegetarians, and after this, praise God for barbecue. Also associated with this, we immediately see God uh, instituting a severe penalty, even the death penalty for the shedding of man's blood. There had been murder up to this point, but now God expressly says, I will demand a reckoning for the shedding of blood. In fact, if you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. We're going to, I'm resisting the temptation to dive a whole lot deeper into that. Uh, I have way too many pages of notes, and those of you who've just finished uh, writing your papers for School of Ministry, you'll be proud of me. Uh, I have chopped down and concise this as much as possible, uh, only uh, it, as they're right, they had to write a 10-page paper coming out of the last uh, Desiring God, God-Centered Life. Uh, in School of Ministry, Uh, but I have an advantage that you don't, which is I have the midweek podcast where I'm going to talk about all that stuff. You just had to pare your ears down, so 
Uh, tune into the midweek podcast. We're going to talk about a bunch of this stuff. But I, I, I want to give us a perspective on what's just happened here. All right, so uh, for the first time in human history, it has rained. For the first time in human history, floods have come and covered the earth. A family has been preserved and saved inside this wooden ark that's just sort of floating on top of the waters. And they floated uh, for about 150 days, but they were inside of the ark for almost a year. Just to give you some perspective, this year there has been some really severe droughts out west. Uh, so much so that a lake called Lake Mead has dried up. It's just outside of Las Vegas. As one uh, newspaper so eloquently put it, uh, a lake which can be reached from the Las Vegas Strip by a short car ride with your hands and feet tied in the trunk of a car <laughs> has started to reveal within the lake sunken treasures. Uh, the one I've chosen to show you uh, is a World War II era boat that has sunk and has been underwater for about 70 years and now as the waters have receded this this boat that was underwater for 70 years is now visible again we know where it is where it came from uh, also other fun things that mobsters have left at the bottom of the lake but we'll we'll leave that for later uh, and yet actually just to touch on that and we'll, we will talk about this in the podcast uh, it's interesting that tied with this passage, God says, if you shed man's blood, by man shall your blood be shed. There will be a reckoning, not because of the grievousness of the crime or the sin. Your sin was so bad that we're going to give you capital punishment. We can't think of anything worse to do to you than to kill you. That's not what God says. He doesn't say your crime was so bad. He says, because man was made in the image of God, you have violated the image of God. That's why your blood shall be required of you. Just a, an interesting thought to think about there. But the waters are receding, and Noah and his family get off the boat after about a year. We don't know how far it drifted. We, we don't know how far they are from where they started. Uh, we know that it's going to end up on these mountains of Ararat, but to be honest, uh, we don't know if those mountains of Ararat match our modern-day mountains of Ararat. We're not given any of those details. But consider with me that there's a pretty good chance that after only a year... How many of you saw the boat in that picture? That was 70 years. After only a year, Noah and his family would have seen the remnants of all of humanity that's been washed away. Houses now beginning to be overgrown, but silent, left unoccupied, a constant reminder of the severity of God's judgment upon sin. It's in that context, this, this resounding silence of creation, which once was this bustling, noisy, wicked world, has been reduced to absolute silence. It's in that that God says, be fruitful and multiply. Again, this is familiar language, and it's actually in a familiar circumstance. If you've got your bulletin, I apologize. I didn't leave you a whole lot of room for notes. Uh, I want you to jot down a couple scriptures here. The first time we're going to hear this, be fruitful and multiply, God says it to Adam. Genesis 1, verse 28. God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every creature that crawls upon the earth. That's Genesis 1.28. So the first be fruitful and multiply is to Adam in Genesis 1.28. This is part of the creation mandate that God gives to Adam and Eve. 
It's interesting, as we go forward, I want you to notice that the take dominion and subdue part of that mandate is now missing from every other future telling of this. I think because God has so woven it into the fabric of this world that he has created, it doesn't actually need to be restated. The mankind by his very nature is subduing the world around him, is taking dominion over the world around him. Uh, when Danielle and I, uh, 20-some years ago, bought the piece of property where our house now sits, uh, we immediately took dominion over it and started chopping down trees to make room for us. Uh, every time you go outside and mow your yard, you are taking dominion. You are subduing and bringing back into order what once was in chaos, which uh, my son and I discovered a couple weeks ago when we were out uh, doing lawn work. We were mowing the yard and I was reminded that we had talked about this back at the beginning of Genesis. And so uh, Aiden has the push mower, and I had the riding Was that the way? Yeah. Yeah, he had the push mower. I was on the riding mower. And I pulled up next to him, and I stopped, and I turned it off, and I went, Dominion! <laughs> He's like, did you just say dominion? I'm like, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're taking dominion over this wild creation. Only our dominion is a broken. We're a Genesis 3 dominion, right? Brokenness and fallenness have polluted this world. So it's not like when Adam took dominion. Because here's what happened immediately after this. As, as my yelling dominion is dying away, Aiden goes, yeah, dominion! And then he pushes the mower forward, and he's right at a little fence post where we have a birdhouse. And as the mower hits the birdhouse, two birds fly out. One, I, I believe it hit him directly in the chest. <laughs> Just paint this picture for you. Dominion! Whop! <laughs> we don't have perfect dominion over this world. Uh, sometimes things seem a little bit out of control. And yet, there's still this... this intrinsic thing that God has woven into the fabric of humanity where we are constantly building up and reclaiming. We are making order out of chaos. It's not just to people that God is going to say, be fruitful and multiply. He's going to say it to the animals as well. Genesis 1, 22. So uh, on the sixth day, God creates and blesses the land animals, but on the fifth day, God creates the first of the birds and the fish, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the waters and the seas, let the birds multiply in the heavens. In an empty world, God has created it to flourish, to multiply. And now here, in Genesis 9-2, God says, The fear and the dread of you shall be upon every animal. Which is why, Aiden, that bird was more freaked out of you than you were of him, although it was an awesome thing to behold. I'll just tell you that. Hey, imagine! Kids, imagine this world where no animals or creeping things are afraid of you at all. Anybody ever been, kids, anybody ever been scratched by your cat before? They get playful, right, and they start going after you? Or a dog? Anybody ever been mauled by a bear? Or a tiger? We like to go to zoos because animals are fun to look at, but if those animals had it the other way around where they were just constantly pursuing us, this would be a terrifying world. And yet God, right from the beginning, when he changes things from everybody being a vegetarian to you can eat each other, like not people, don't eat each other. Kids, don't eat, don't eat your brother or sister, it's bad. God says, I'm going to build in a protection mechanism and the 
the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all of the animals, especially ladies, thanks be to God, the creeping things will have a fear of you. They only come out at night. Okay. God's going to say these same words to Noah. We read it here, Genesis 9-1. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. He's going to say it again, Genesis 9, verse 7. But as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out across the earth and multiply upon it. What was the condition of Noah's day that was comparable to Adam's day? It was empty. It was devoid of humanity. Into an empty world, an empty creation, God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. God's going to say this same thing to Abraham, only he's going to, rather than requiring it as a command, God is going to say, I'm going to do this. So the next one is Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 5, if you're taking notes. Genesis 17, 5. No longer will you be called Abram, but your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will descend from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout the generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So what's different in this saying of it? Well, now the earth is populated. God isn't saying be fruitful and multiply because there aren't enough people. God is saying I'm going to build a people amongst all the peoples of the earth. A family amongst all the families of the earth. But how many children did Abram have with his wife Sarai at this time? None. He's almost 100 years old. It's almost inconceivable. So inconceivable that they say, God, there's no way you can keep your promise. Take my maid, Hagar, and take her as a second wife and have an illegitimate child with her, at least illegitimate to the, the kingdom of God. And so Ishmael is born. And yet God says, I will not bless you through Ishmael. I will bless you through Isaac, the child of promise who is coming. God says, I'm going to build a family, but there are no people in your family. Therefore, I'm going to make you fruitful. I will make you multiply. Notice it's God saying that he will do it. We find it at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We find it again repeated to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, Genesis 35 verse 10 and 11. God said to them, though your name is Jacob, which means the sneaky one, you will no longer be called Jacob. Instead, your name will be Israel. This is why we refer to all the descendants that come after us, the children of Israel. So God named him Israel. And God told him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, even a company of nations, shall come from you, and kings shall descend from you. Again, it's the promise that God is going to build a people. They are no people. Be fruitful and multiply. We find it to Jacob's son, Joseph. It would be Abraham's great-grandson. Genesis 48, verse 4. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply. I will make you a company of peoples. I will give you this land to you and your offspring as an everlasting possession. In fact, this promise would be kept so well to Joseph and his descendants as they lived, especially in the land of Egypt, that the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, would be afraid that they were going to take over the nation. And so he uh, tricked them and enslaved them. In fact, he would enslave them for the next 400 years until God sets his people free. And he leads them to the promised land, the land of, anybody know what the name is? Canaan. Does that sound familiar? We find it twice in this passage 
uh, beginning in uh, verse 25. And yet God's people go to the promised land and are still unfaithful. And so he disciplines them by allowing other nations, other foreign powers to come in and conquer them, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, who, by the way, had a genius strategy for how to conquer people. Here it is. We're going to come in and we're, just imagine that we are the people of Israel. I'm going to take one-third of the people and everyone on this side dies. I'm, I'm going to execute you rather publicly in front of all the rest of you so that you will fear and then I'm going to take another third, and I'm going to essentially kidnap you and take you to this other place, that another place I've conquered, and I'll take them and I'll replace them with you. So this third remains, this third has been kidnapped, and this third is dead. And the third that remains is now mixed with people from a different place, different gods, different ideologies, different ways of doing things. And the hope is, as they intermarry one with another, you begin to lose your identity as the people of God. It was a genius way of taking over a nation. It left them with no hope and no homeland, no identity, just a conquering, ruling power over them and all the promise of God to them lost. That was the design, but because of God's eternal covenant, it doesn't work. And so we find... Years after that, God repeating this covenant to those people who are in exile in Babylon, hopeless, losing their identity, and yet hear what God says through the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, verse 3, to the returning exiles, his promise, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply." even though they're coming back to a place where they are intermixed with unbelievers and foreigners who worship other gods. And so the warning comes in the last prophet that we find in the Old Testament in Malachi, chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another and profane the covenant? If you read through Malachi chapter 2, he's going to say you've profaned the covenant this, this agreement God has made between him and his people, a people that would bear his name, a people that would build a house for him, a temple that would be a home for his name, Malachi chapter 2 verse 11 says. He says you've profaned it by marrying the daughters of a foreign god. These peoples you have begun to intermix with as if it didn't mean anything that God had called you out to be his people. The point was always that God was making and building a people for himself. Beginning with Adam, I'm going to multiply people. And Noah, I'm going to multiply people. With Abraham, I'm going to multiply a family. Even in exile, I'm going to bring them back that I might have a people for my own possession. The point is always God, not the people. And God putting his glory on display in them. That's why this covenant is a covenant not that Noah agreed to. It's a unilateral covenant that God made. Look at your Bible in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that is with you. This is interesting because almost all the other covenants we're going to find in Scripture is between God and man. And in the Noahic covenant, God is going to include all of creation. Every living creature will benefit from this covenant. 
Verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you and all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Kids, how many of you have ever seen a rainbow before? You seen it? Every single time you see that rainbow, God has put that there on purpose that you would be reminded of his covenant with all of us. Verse 14, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and all the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. It almost feels like he just keeps repeating it. This is the sign. This is the sign. This is the covenant. This is the covenant. It's because God is promising, not based on anything Noah and his family would do, but God's great love and faithfulness. We're not going to take time to dive into these. There are several covenants that God makes with people. Uh, he makes the covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with uh, God's people in Moses' time at Mount Sinai. Uh, he makes a covenant with David, and ultimately through Christ giving us the new covenant where we are adopted into his family. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow in the sky. And God says, I will remember. Now, kids, does God ever forget anything? No. God knows everything. God is, is not just someone like us who lives with a past and a present and a future. God sees all of those as one. He can't actually forget anything. God does not need to remind it, be reminded. He never sees it and goes, oh, yeah. Here's the point. Every time you see it, you're reminded of God's promised faithfulness. And it, that word for remembered actually means to show special care. That God has promised to show special care to those who belong to him. What 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Out of that darkness, out of that, the earth has been wiped clean. Verse 18 says, The sons of Noah went forth from the ark. They were Shem and Ham and Japheth, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And here the story takes a strange turn. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the, house, in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is a strange ending to this story. Moses is telling it, not to us, but to the people of Israel. 
We benefit from it. And yet this is an inclusion of a bizarre and in fact humiliating story for Noah and his family. Now think about it. We tell embarrassing and funny stories, right? Our, our families do sometimes embarrassing and funny things. Now, if it's still embarrassing to somebody, we're probably not going to tell that story. And yet, once we've kind of got over the embarrassment, we all have funny stories from our family. You know what we don't tell? Humiliating stories. We don't tell stories to crush and humiliate the people that we love and we care about. Uh, you'll notice that the memory verse for today looks like this, God's promise, and it doesn't look like that. Although I desperately wanted to stick that on as the coloring page for today, I just stopped myself from doing it. Why is this included in Scripture? Why are we given this story? Why has this been passed along to us? And I want to say it's because, number one, this story is not primarily about Noah and his drunkenness or nakedness. And it's also, number two, not primarily about Ham and his sin against his father. It's about God's righteous judgment and God's sovereign election. We've just seen God's righteous judgment as the entire humanity of the world, save for eight people, has been washed away by the flood. Righteous judgment and election. God had elected to save these eight people. And now, again, within this family, it gets even smaller. We see God's righteous judgment. As God is going to preserve part of Noah's family as those chosen to be uh, in the lineage of the sons of Israel and of Abraham. And some, he pronounces a curse on generations before they ever show up. Just a note on this, Kenneth Matthews in his commentary says this, It is interesting that these are the only words heard from the mouth of the survivor of the great flood in the whole narrative. This is all we ever hear Noah say. God says, I will do this. He commands Noah to do this, and we're told that he does it. But the only words we're actually given of Noah is him pronouncing a blessing and a curse on his sons and then on uh, his lineage in Canaan. Now, because Christians tend to be giant weirdos, can we all just agree on that? Just a bunch of weirdos. Here's what we have done. Endless speculation on what exactly Ham's sin is, because we're, we're, not, we're not sure. It says that he, he sees his father uncovered. He goes and tells his brothers. Uh, clearly, by, by what we're told in the story, he could have covered him up. He could have done what his brothers did. But we don't know what made it so bad that God, through the prophet Noah, would pronounce a curse upon generations yet to come in Ham's lineage. Uh, some of the crazy Christian speculation has been that Ham did something immoral to his father. Uh, even a couple commentaries going so far to say that uh, Ham seized that opportunity to castrate his father. And that, here is their justification. At the end of this, uh, we're told that Noah lived 950 years and he died. Not like the other genealogies had other sons and daughters and died. I want to say that's ridiculous and that's reading into scripture. And yet, what, what happened? What was so grievous that God would judge Ham for this sin? Again, I would say that's not the point. We're speculating on the wrong thing. There's a couple of grievous sins here. 
right? Noah winds up drunk and naked in his tent, and his son somehow offends him against that. And yet the point is that God has chosen to show blessing to part of Noah's family and to curse another part of Noah's family. We're told twice in this passage that Ham is the father of Canaan for no reason. It doesn't make any sense to say that in this narrative. We don't need that information. We're not given all the names of the other sons. In fact, Canaan is probably Ham's youngest son. And yet God has chosen to bring judgment against the people of Canaan that were coming. As our family studied through this chapter last week, we were away, uh, just had a, a wonderful time as a family, uh, just enjoying time together, but also worshiping together. Last Sunday, we read through this chapter. One of the questions that was raised was, why did Noah curse Ham's son Canaan and not Ham himself? Did you notice that? God doesn't pronounce a curse on, on Ham for his sin, but on his son. Especially when Scripture is going to say, Deuteronomy 24, 16, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And yet there's a reality. Uh, I read one commentator who was talking about this, recognizing, in his words, recognizing that God sees the sins of people and sin tendencies that are passed on to generations, one to the next. Only I would actually say it's, it's actually deeper than that and more difficult than that. Because if you look at your Bible, uh, well, let me just uh, have you flip to this. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. Just flip over there. The next book after Genesis. Because the Bible is not going to say that God recognizes the sins of people. It's going to say that he visits the sins upon people and upon generations. This is a difficult theological truth called reprobation. That God has chosen some for blessing and some to be a means of demonstrating his righteous judgment. Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting. That word visiting is the Hebrew word pakad, and it means to visit or to appoint appointing unto them the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand of those who love me and keep my commandments. Even here, this, this Genesis story of beginning again on the earth, God is saying, generations from now, there are coming a people. We're, we're going to talk about this more in the midweek podcast. We don't have time to go into it today. A people of Canaan who are going to occupy a land that I'm going to take from them and give to my people, the children of Israel, and the seed of it is right here in Genesis 9. In that are the Amorites, uh, just to kind of whet your appetite for the podcast, uh, a people who God is going to say, I am storing up wrath against them. The time isn't yet, but when it comes, I'm going to really deal harsh, deal harsh with them because of their sin and because of the blessing on my people. Uh, don't miss that there is always not just the blessing of his people, but there is a genuine reckoning for the sin of a godless world. And yet here lies Noah the patriarch of the faith, a survivor of the great flood of God's judgment, drunk and naked on the floor of his tent. Here stands Noah's sons, 
generationally separated by the sovereign choosing of God. Even as Romans chapter 9 verse 13 is going to say, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Even within families, God is choosing those who belong to him. God sovereignly choosing a people. This is the story of Genesis. God sovereignly choosing a people, choosing a family. It keeps shrinking, choosing a man that God has promised to remember for the sake of his great name. God, we pray that that would be true in us. Lord, we thank you for this book of Genesis. We thank you for the accounts of these lives that are found in it. And yet we pray, oh God, would this be true of us. You are unchanged and unchanging as the sovereign king of the universe. You have still chosen for yourself a people. You have put your name upon that people, that in Christ we have been adopted into your family. We thank you for the church that you have promised that Christ will be the head of his church and the gates of hell won't even be able to to stand against it because you will build your church. But Lord, if we're honest, for us that's not enough. We pray, God, please build your kingdom in our families. To our sons and daughters, to their sons and daughters, we pray, write our names into your family. Reveal the greatness of Christ that we might trust and believe and be adopted. For those in this room, O God, who have families, flesh and blood, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters who are far from you, who right now are rejecting your gracious offer of salvation, we cry out on their behalf and we pray, O God, would you please open their eyes. God, we know 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They cannot see it. It's not that they're not smart enough or good enough. They cannot see it. And so we pray on their behalf, oh God, would you pull the blinders off of their eyes? By your Holy Spirit, would you let them see the desperateness of their sin, their great need for a Savior, the great love of a God who would choose to save them even though, just like us, they are unworthy. God, would you write your name on us as individuals, as families, as a church. Let us be a people of your own possession for your great namesake. Amen. Worship team, if you would come on up. Just want to encourage you a a few things to be uh, thinking about, talking about, having conversations in light of Genesis chapter 9, get together as a family, uh, read through Genesis 9 again, then ask some of these questions. Noah's sin was real, and so was his sons, but that's not the main point of the story. What is? If Noah's sin isn't the main point, if his son's sin isn't the main point, what is the main point of this sin? And especially families with small kids, really guide them towards recognizing and trusting in God's sovereign power to choose a people and keep a people for himself. In God, the sovereign judge of the universe who will not look lightly upon sin. And then ask the question, how is this same thing true for our lives? How is it true that even our sin and our past isn't the main point of the story, but the God who saves? Remind yourself, what is God's promise in the rainbow? And then Pray, number one, thank God for 
choosing us to be part of his eternal family. And number two, ask God to save those in our earthly family who don't believe. Because we don't have the power to save ourselves. We are so dependent upon the power and the mercy of God for salvation. That's why every week at the end of our service, uh, we conclude by coming to the table of the Lord. Reminding us that it is not our sacrifice that we offer. That's why at our church we have no altar. We have no priest because we have no sacrifice to make. Christ has made the full and perfect sacrifice. What we do is we receive the gift of his sacrifice. Would you grab your bulletin and open it up to the catechism portion? We're doing things a little differently because of the nature of this section as it focuses on coming to the Lord's Supper to prepare our hearts to come to the table. So would you stand together with me? If you are a believer, as we confess this together, I would encourage you, let it resonate within your heart. If you are not a believer in here, I would challenge you, I would plead with you, put your trust in Christ. You have no other hope. You have no other righteousness, no goodness in yourself. I'll ask the questions and then together as a congregation, let us respond. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread of the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? First, to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and death of Christ, and so receive the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, to be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore, although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, Yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And we forever live and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. Where has Christ promised that he will nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul, where he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving in which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Friends, as we sing together, would you come and take of the elements, take them back to your seats. And then as we bless them, we will take them together. But worship team, begin to lead us and we will take the elements. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.